I encourage you to take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to Psalm 8. Uh, Psalm 8, as we continue working our way through the Psalms this summer, and um, we have, hopefully one of the things that you, you have seen as we've been working through is that these Psalms are not just kind of independently thrown together, but they're really distinctly and uniquely uh, connected to one to each other. It, one of the, the, uh, the, the things that's really um, kind of come over these Psalms that we've been looking at over the last few weeks has to do with the specific historical context in the life of David that comes out of um, uh, Psalm 3. And it's about uh, when Absalom takes over the, the kingdom from David, and David is, by, you know, for lack of a better term, excommunicated from the kingdom, and he spends the time on the run. He's, uh, he's, he's fearing for his life. And of course, this, this goes on for years. Um, and it's not until... This ninth psalm, the, really the ninth and tenth psalm, that we see that there's kind of a resolution to that period uh, in the life of David. In fact, we, I think I mentioned this last week, but the inscription over the ninth psalm is to the chief musician to the tune of death, the son. So it becomes apparent that David's son, Absalom, has died. And this is a psalm that he composed as a consequence of that. But most of these psalms that we've been looking at as it relates to this time period, is a psalm of lament, which can be understandable. When you have your own flesh and blood betray you, and not only betray you, but wishes ill on you and wishes you to be dead. And the, the way in which Absalom sought to do that was not only by force, but also by ruining his reputation. And so these psalms have been uh, written and a context of a, a trying and difficult time in the life of David. It's a way that he expresses his sorrow uh, to the Lord. But we're going to see somewhat of a bright spot here in Psalm 8. And I think it segues very nicely out of Psalm 7, because if you remember, the very last verse of Psalm 7 is verse 17. I will praise the Lord according to his righteousness and sing the praise to the name of the Lord most high. Psalm 8 actually picks this up in detail about what this praise actually is, the specifics of this praise, the content of it, and even highlighting the idea of the name of the Lord. As we'll see here in just a moment, when he gives this praise to God, he says, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic or how excellent is your name, your name in all the earth. So let's look at this psalm and notice the inscription above it, to the chief musician on the instrument of Gath, a psalm of David. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth, who have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants you have ordained strength, because of your enemies that you may silence the enemy and the avenger. When I considered your heavens and the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained. What is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you visit him? For you have made him a little lower than the angels, and you have crowned him with glory and honor. You have made him to have the dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, even the beasts of the field, the birds of the air, and the fish of the sea that pass through the pass of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth. Let's pray together. Father, we just ask that you will speak to us through your word today. 
And may your son Jesus Christ shine brightly in your word. That even though we're here in the Old Testament and nowhere in this text is the name Jesus mentioned. That the Lord Jesus is everywhere in the Old Testament. And may we see that today. May he be exalted. And as he exalted, may he draw all peoples to himself. And we pray this in the name of your son Jesus. Amen. Now, the the praise of God for creation is a recurring theme in the book of Psalms. And it seems in some way, in some sense, out of place in this context as we've been thinking about these Psalms being a collection of something that David is going through in his life as it relates to Absalom. And so, so far we've seen all these lament Psalms, but all of a sudden he bursts out into praise as he begins to observe the goodness of God especially as it relates to the creative order. So I can imagine that maybe this may be a time in David's life, as he's on the run, possibly at night, laying on his back, and as he looks at the stars and he looks at the skies, he becomes overwhelmed by seeing the glory of God and creation. Maybe that's what gave rise to this. We, We have no way of knowing But even in the midst of his lament, he gives praise to God. So there's always a reason for us, no matter where we are in our life, no matter what we're going through, no matter what trial there is, for us to have a reason to praise God. There's always a reason for that, and apparently David found one. And it brought forth this beautiful and magnificent psalm. When we think about the psalms, there's 150 of them, and very few of them that we know um, personally. We all probably know Psalm 23, and I'm sure that most of you are very aware of Psalm 8. It has risen to the forefront of the Psalms as as something that the church has grasped uh, and grabbed hold of and, and found hope in and see much about the character and the nature of God. But in the midst of his lament, there's a praise, and it's a praise for the nature of God and his glory as it is demonstrated in creation, even more so, he gives praise that this great and wonderful God, that he he even has concern for little old David, little old me, little old you, that God actually has concern and benevolent care toward. One of the things that actually comes out in this psalm is that it is grounded in Scripture. It it echoes much of Genesis 1 and 2 as the creation narrative. So it's not surprising to see how the emphasis on the creation of mankind as the climax of all creation has been carried over to this psalm of praise. So as he praises the the greatness of God's creation, then it reaches a crescendo as he speaks about the nature of man and how God has set man over the creative order to have dominion and to have rulership over all of these things. As we begin looking at this psalm, we, we start with verse 1, and really verses 1 through 2, and we see the greatness of God in his creation. Now, if you'll notice that it begins with our Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth, then this is repeated in verse 9. So this is what we call refrain. So there's, and it's, it's, it's structured in an interesting way because it's at the, the forefront and also at the end. And then bookend, it functions as bookends between the content of what's the reason or, or why is it that David gives this praise 
to the Lord? Why is it that he declares his glory uh, and how his, his name is majestic? Well, the content of it is found in verses uh, 2 through 8. And so we're, let's just focus here on this first part uh, that actually is a refrain that uh, is repeated in verse 9. And it's really an astonishing exclamation that set the foundation uh, for understanding this psalm. The psalm this invokes the divine name of God. As we see in our text, you have Lord, all caps, and then it's followed by Lord and little caps. So the Lord in all caps, that's the covenant name of God, his sacred name, Yahweh, the name by which God's people enter into a relationship with him. And then the, the Lord in little caps is the word Adonijah. And Adonai is a word that expresses God's sovereignty over all things. And so what is praiseworthy is the great king's revelation of his glory in and self-involvement with creation. In fact, we've actually noticed throughout the Psalms that we've looked at, especially in Psalm 3 and verse 2 and Psalm 4 and verse 6, that there has been accusation by David's enemies questioning whether God was actually in control, whether God was actually good to his people. In other words, question whether God rightly earned the name Yahweh, the Lord, his covenant name, the name by which he enters into a relation with his people. So we, we find in Psalm 3 and Psalm 4 that the, the accusers of David, they question whether God is actually good to him. And so David's response to that is, Our Lord, Yahweh, how excellent is his name. They also question whether God actually has control over the world. And it, it makes sense in some way because David is God's anointed king. But now that he's outside of Jerusalem and Absalom has Jerusalem, does God really have control? Over his kingdom. God really have control over all things. And so David's answer to that was not only is the Lord, Yahweh, the covenant God who cares for his people, but also he invokes God's a, a, a title, Lord, speaking of God as a great king who is indeed sovereign over all things. And so regardless of the accusations that God, that they may say God is not sovereign and ruler over the earth, the psalmist suggests otherwise. He positions God as the ruler, as the creator of all things. Now, what he says here, in both in verse 1 and verse 9, is that the name of God is majestic or excellent over all the earth. And the name that he's speaking about, God only has one name, by the way. His name is Yahweh, right? So we speak of him as God, we speak of him as Lord. These are more titles. He only has one name, and that is Yahweh. That's the name that he gave to his people that we find on the page of Scripture in Exodus chapter 3. And so when it talks about God's name, how excellent is your name, that's the name that it's speaking of. His covenant name that, is, that comes out of this, this text. And so what he says about God's name is that it's majestic or excellent over all the earth. The majesty of Yahweh's name radiates from his mighty work on heaven and earth. When the word excellent is used in other texts, it normally describes a mighty ship, a leader, or nobles. The common thread seems to be one impressive, almost intimidating power. 
a power that is visible for all people to see. Now, the idea of God's name being majestic is an important one for us to understand, for God's name is a revelation of who he is. The gift of God's name to Israel in Exodus was an act of radical self-revelation by which God made himself known and accessible to his people he had taken as his own. The name of God is also an extension of God himself. Where God chooses to place his name in the land and the temple on his people, their God is also. In this text, God's name is declared in the earth and the heavens, and every bit of creation is saturated with God. In fact, we find in Psalm 19 in verse 1 that says, The heavens declare the glory of God. That the whole earth is full of his glory. That's one of the things that the angels were singing when Isaiah had um, the vision there in Isaiah 6. The, the whole earth is full of his glory. And so in the same way, we're seeing how the name of God, it's, it's in all of the earth. The glory of God permeates all things. And only God's people know how to respond to the re- revelation of God's majesty and creation because he has revealed his name to them. And so David is the one who knows this name of God, who's entered into a covenant relationship by virtue of this name, and he knows how to appropriately respond to God's revelation of himself in the creative order. Now, the importance of God's name is not just something on the pages of the Old Testament, but it also carries with great significance with us today, especially as we think about it in the New Testament. When Peter was speaking about the name of Jesus, this is the statement that he made. There is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. The name of Jesus. Uh, the result of Jesus' glorification by the Father resulted in being given a name which is above every name that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those in heaven and of those on the earth and of those under the earth and confess that every time should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Further, we find that people are to believe on Jesus' name. They're to pray in his name, call on his name. They are called by his name. And then we find in the book of Revelation, and to the one who overcomes, God will write write on him his name. So the name of God carries a, a great significance. So when we speak about God's name, We should speak about it with great reverence and with a sense of gravity. But also, I think it's important for us to think about that God has put his name upon us. If we are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, if we repent of our sins and trust in Jesus Christ, we bear the name of Christ on our life. And since we bear the name of Christ on our lives, and that has great implications for how we live, that we want to live in such a way that we bring honor to the name of Christ to the name by which we claim. And so God's greatness is seen in, in his name as it is, as it is uh, you know, pictured across all of creation. You know, he has set his glories above the heavens. The, the heavens declare the glory of God. But we also see that as we move on, that not only is the greatness of God found in his creation, we also find that the greatness of God is illustrated by the means which he uses to demonstrate his greatness. Notice in verse 2, 
He says, out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants, you have ordained strength because of your enemies that you may silence the enemy and the avenger. So the greatness of God is illustrated by the use of contrasting children and enemies. Now, when we think about children and um, you know, nursing infants, what, what kind of picture normally comes to your mind? Do you, you really think that children and nursing infants are the solution to the problems of enemies? Now, if I want a solution to the problem of enemy, I'm going to find me a grown man, a large grown man, a strong one with great endurance, with great strength. But that's not how the psalm demonstrates the strength of God. It demonstrates the strength of God through the mouth of babes and nursing infants. And children usually generate a picture of weakness, humility, dependence, where enemies are normally associated with strength and assertion. But it's through the weakness that God brings about the destruction of enemies. All throughout the biblical text, God rose up men who were considered weak to silence his enemies. Who would have thought that a baby floating down the Nile in a basket would deliver God's people from slavery? Just just think about what that means. Egypt was the superpower of that day. There was no one greater than Pharaoh. And yet it was a baby in a wicker basket that brought him to his knees. That manifests the strength of God through the weakness of this world. In fact, it's why we find in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 1 and chapter 2 where it speaks about the cross. It's through the foolishness of preaching that people are saying. I mean, you take the message of the cross as we declare that Jesus Christ died on the cross for sinners. That is a a message of insanity, really, when you think about it, that a, a dying man brings salvation, that it's through a dying man that we find hope and we find strength. But it's through the weakness of the things of this world that God confounds, uh, confounds the, the wise. Um, and it, it was Paul who said, I, you know, I came to you in fear. I came to you in weakness with nothing but the power of the cross. And Paul declaring himself to be a weak man, and we know that it was Paul who set the world afire for the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so God uses the weak to confine uh, the, the, you know, his enemies. It's, it's just amazing. It really gives us a picture to show the greatness of God, that God is so great, that God is so powerful, that he doesn't need a powerful man to bring about down his enemies. He does it with children and nursing infants. Now, I think there's also obvious links to, um, as I mentioned earlier, there's obvious links in this psalm to Genesis 1 and 2. And I think that verse 2 may actually have Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15 in mind. Genesis 3 and verse 15 is often characterized as what's called the proto-gospel, the first gospel, the first prophecy of God's redemption in and through Jesus Christ. And this is what it says, and I will put enmity between your seed and her seed, He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So the seed of the woman would parallel the mouth of babes and nursing infants. The term rendered enemy relates to the word enmity 
in Genesis 3 and verse 15. And interestingly enough, is that the word that translated in my text, avenger, is in the singular. It's, it's a word that speaks about enemies. And, and all throughout the Psalms, that enemies is typically used in the plural, speaking about the enemies, the, these various people that are, are against or opposed to God. But here in this text, the word is in the singular, which could refer to the one enemy who instigated the fall, speaking of Satan. So this psalm may poetically reflect on Genesis 3 and verse 15, asserting that the woman would have a child who would be the answer to Satan's rebellion. Now, now just think about this verse in context with the life of Jesus Christ. Jesus was born in weakness. He wasn't born as some king or in some place of grandeur. He was born to peasants. He was born to poor people. His first place where he laid his head was in a feeding trough that was for animals. Not a place fit for the king. But it was through this baby, this nursing infant, that God manifested his great strength. And bringing Sin and death and sickness to its very knees. It's through this baby that came into this earth that eventually grew into a man and died on the cross for our sins and rose again on the third day and who's now ascended in heaven. It's through that that God brings about his plan of redemption and that he thwarts the purposes of sin and and Satan. And so it's amazing as, as David is pondering the greatness of God, he He sees the greatness of him in creation. He also sees the greatness of how he works through these these weak aspects and how it confounds the the wise and the powerful. And then this leads him in verses 3 through 4 to think about God's greatness as it relates to his, his prime creation, man. Now, when considering the handiwork of God, the the heavens and the moons and the stars, who cannot feel small and insignificant? Notice how all of this is done by the works of God's finger. If you'll look there in verse 3, it says, When I consider your, your heavens, the works of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, or that you have, you have set them. So if you'll notice there that God has positioned everything in the creative order, the moon, the stars, the planets, the galaxy, he has positioned everything with his fingers. And this communicates how easy this was for God. It also communicates this greatness. In fact, one writer speaks of God's fingers and creation when he says, In contrast to God, the heavens are tiny, pushed and prodded into shape by divine digits. Think about that for a minute. As we see a, a clear night and we see this uh the sky and the the stars and we know that the galaxy is the the miles of the galaxy we cannot begin to comprehend and yet god is greater than all of that god is bigger than all of that and god with his very finger he pushed it and he placed it all where it is that's the greatness of god and then, of course, if you notice in verse 3 where it talks about how he ordained it how, or how he set it in place. And this is noted um, in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 17, which is similar, where it says God placed them in the expanse of the sky to 
provide light on earth. Speaking of the heavens, God has done this. And the observation about God's creation is not just by observation alone. But what David sees in creation is distinctly formed by God's revelation of himself in sacred scripture. So all of this that David is saying is not just by observation. This is by what he sees through the lens of God's word. I've already mentioned that this this text relies heavily on Genesis 1 through 2. And so this is how David sees all of the creative order. He's not just coming as a natural man with a blank slate. He is a man who has been permeated with God's word. He's a blessed man. And what does the blessed man do? He meditates on the law day and night. He delights in the law. So this is not just a natural man making these natural observations. This is a man who sees these things, but he's also immersed in the scriptures and he knows what the Bible says about the created order. So everything that he sees in the heavens is through the lens of the Bible. And it becomes clear when this psalm is analyzed that it draws heavily from the first three chapters of Genesis. Natural revelation alone cannot move someone from seeing the beauty of always seeing the created order with our eyes to a knowledge of God through his son Jesus Christ. It is only through God's special revelation in his word that Yahweh is revealed. Now, all that revelation will do, natural revelation, all that is enough to do is condemn. That's all it will do. It takes special revelation. It takes the preaching and the proclamation of the gospel. It takes the Bible to move us from this observation to a relationship with God that comes only through Jesus Christ. And so the Bible, the Word of God, is the supreme revelation of who God is. So, I mean, there's, there's nothing like seeing the beauty of creation. I mean, you're just, you see it with your eyes and you're, you're dumbfounded and you, it, it's just hard to imagine, hard to take in. But dear friends, that pales in comparison to seeing the beauty of God in his word. The beauty and the glory of God in his word far exceeds anything that you're ever going to see in this life. Because it's only through his word that we can see the glory of God in his son, Jesus Christ, to bring us salvation and to a relationship with him. Now, when the psalmist is confronted with the reality of all that he sees in the creative order, he asked a question in verse 4, what is man? And the question is asked with a sense of deprecation. Notice he says, he asks what? What is man? Not who is man, but what is man? Which is intensifying the greatness of God while highlighting the lowliness of man. And it's interesting to note that in verse 4, Man is mentioned two times, and the psalmist uses two different words that are translated man. The first emphasizes frailty, sickness, and morality. In fact, it, it's, the, uh, it's actually a, a Hebrew word that's a, a name, Enosh. Enosh was the son of Seth. So, that's the, so that kind of is a term for man, which emphasizes frailty, sickness, and mortality. And it really makes sense. Because after the sin of Adam and Eve, that's what is the consequence of humanity. So, you know, Enosh is only removed by, from Adam and Eve by one. 
which would have been his father, Seth. And then the second word which is translated man is the word Adam, or the name Adam, which is a general word that emphasizes being made from the dust. And that's, what, that's how Genesis portrays how man was made, how Adam was made. It was out of the dust that he was made. And then God breathed into him the breath of the light. And so the psalmist is really attempting through poetry to demean the idea of man. Because not only is he frail and sick, but he's also nothing but the dust. And the final thought of the psalm when contemplating God's greatness and humanity's weakness is not look how great God is and how puny we are, By contrast, instead, the central idea is that God is interested and cares for humanity. The image is cast of God's incredible love and providential care for his people. I mean, that's the the idea. If you'll notice there at the very last part of verse 4. What is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you visit him? And then he speaks about how we were made. For you, were, for you have made him a little lower than the angels, and you have crowned him with glory and honor. And so he moves, moves from this to speak about that the greatness of man comes from God, that whatever we have that we can determine as being great, it's only through God. And, and really what this, the rest of this psalm does is it speaks about man as created in the image of God. That what makes man significant is that he has been stamped with God's image. Because he's just frail, he's just sick, he's just out of the dust. But what makes him different is that he is stamped with the image of God. And really what intensifies God's concern for humanity is the fact that the psalmist understands the fall into sin. And so the psalmist is not writing with some utopian mindset, but within the reality of the fall which brought pain, frustration, futility, and death into the world. And yet even with that, God still visits him. God still exercises his benevolence care for humanity. And even further, that the image of God is still stamped on humanity, even though that that image may be effaced and distorted in a very distinct and real and perverse way, all people are still created in the image of God. And when we read the creation narrative, we find that humanity is no accident or afterthought with God, but we have a divine purpose. God has made man in his own image. He has made humans a little lower than the angels, a position of distinct honor. you know, just kind of let that register with you, because when we think about a- angels, we think about the celestial beings. You know, a lot of people these days are, are obsessed with angels, learning about angels. You know, there's all kinds of books about angels. And here the psalmist tells us that we are made a little less, just a tiny bit less than the angels. Once again, kind of elevating the status of humanity as God's creation, created in his image. God has bestowed the highest possible honor on an earthly creature by creating them a little less elevated than the beings that occupy the heavenly sphere. God has adorned humanity with glory and honor. In fact, the writer of Hebrews used this verse to stress the humanity of Christ. 
as the first man was lower than God, the second man was similarly clothed with the human nature to fulfill all that man could not. Not only is man made a little lower than the angel, but he's also given dominion over creation. And the psalmist is drawing directly from Genesis 1 and verse 28. Then God blessed him, and the Lord said to him, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves. Now just think about what this means for humanity to have dominion over the creative order. There is essentially not anything in this creative order that we cannot you know, rule in a sense, right? I mean, have you ever seen a circus? You, you think that the, the king of the jungle wouldn't be standing on a, on a ball, but somehow man has been able to train a lion to do this and that. You, you go to a zoo and all these creatures that, that humanity has subdued, that we, we show this dominion that we have over all things. And not only that, but there are other aspects that, that humanity shows their dominion over creation. It was before my lifetime where somebody walked on a moon. This is all part of this creative design that God has ingrained with us. It comes out of us being in the image of God and also having dominion over all of these things. And with David, as he thinks about this, it just results not in him looking at himself and praise, but looking to God because he recognizes that it's only through God that man could be anything. He was created in the image of God. He was given dominion over. All these things were gifts that God had given them. And so we, we see in this text that it shows how man exercised dominion over these whole things. One of the things I want us to think about and how this passage is actually used in, in the New Testament. Both Paul and the writer of Hebrews see Psalm 8 as being fulfilled in Christ. In Psalm 8 and verse 6, and speaking of dominion over creation, he says, you have put all things under his feet. In Ephesians 1, this, this verse Verse 6 is used to speak of God giving the Lord Jesus dominion over all things. And it says, and he put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things. So essentially what we find in the New Testament is that Jesus Christ fulfills Psalm 8. That he is that man. When you ask, what is man? Jesus Christ is the man. He is the man that God has, that God has uh, brought into this world you know, through the incarnation. And that he has exercised his power over all things. That he actually is the man that can do what the first man could not do. And that was faithfully follow God. And then in Hebrews chapter 2 and verses 5 through 8, it uses Psalm 8, 4 through 6 to confirm that Jesus is God's new Adam, that Jesus is God's man to undo what sin has thwarted. And so the answer to the question that David has, what is man, 
if we think about this, especially through the lens of the New Testament, if we think about it through the person of Jesus Christ, that the answer to that question, what is man? What, what is our identity? Man, woman. That it's really only found in the context of a relationship with God. The psalmist acknowledged the greatness, sovereignty, and providential care of God. And through this relationship, it became clear to the psalmist of his inherent value before the creator of God. The text makes clear about the fact that man is made in the image of God. It is also clear from the psalm as a whole that the image of God is tainted by sin. And the only way in which we are able to find the answer to the question, what is man, is to look at the man, the Lord Jesus Christ. How can we be the man or woman that God has intended us to be? Now, you actually find the answer to that in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verses 45 through 47, which sets the two different men, the, the representative man, the first Adam and the second Adam apart. In the first Adam, there is sin and death. In the second Adam, there is life. And there is, uh, there is hope. And there is holiness. And there is righteousness. So that's the answer that we, we find in this text about you know, how can we be that, that man? It's only through the person of Jesus Christ. So the first man is characterized by dust, and all those that follow after him will return to the dust. And the usage of dust invokes the worthlessness and death. However, those who follow after the second Adam will bear the image of the heavenly man. The worth and value of men and women is found only in the context of a relationship with God through Jesus That's the only way that we can find the the real essence of what this psalm means to us. That we can find our our real standing of who we are in the light of God's creative order. That men and women were created with a specific role, but as a result of sin, that's been thwarted, that's been disrupted. And it's only through the second Adam that God restores, is, is restoring his good creation. It's coming about through redemption and through salvation. And so as we consider these, these truths in God's word about the, the glory of God in creation, and it's not just the glory of God in creation as we see with our eyes, but it's the glory of God as we see through the lens of Scripture. It's only through Scripture that gives us this beauty that David is able to, is, is to write about. It's not just looking at creation and then he pens this. It's looking at the creative order through the lens of, of Genesis 1, 2, and through, that God has created all of these things. And at the center of his creation is his purposes that he has through men and women as he has created them as his crown creation to be in relationship with him. And that the only way that that creation purpose can be restored is through the person of Jesus Christ who came to be the man. The man who lived a perfect life, died on a cross for our sins, and rose again on the third day to restore us to our creative purpose. Let's pray together.